the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's an absolute delight to have Aaron Wren in the house. He's an expert on the complex, controversial, and timely topic of the meritocracy in the United States. This key issue has tendrils reaching across American life, from education to culture to religion to finance and economics and politics. Indeed, there's a general sense, and it's been around for decades now, that our elites are failing to earn their keep, letting us down, and looking out for themselves. Aaron Wren, welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. Thanks for having me. Aaron Wren, you've written a terrific piece in American Affairs that stirred a good bit of comment. It's called, and get ready for this, Rediscovering E. Digby Bolzell's Sociology of Elites. Now, going underneath the hood of that rather forbidding title, what are you arguing and why should all of your fellow Americans care about this? Well, uh, Digby Boltzell was the sociologist who coined the term, or he really, he claims he didn't coin it, but he popularized it, the term WASP for white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. So he was the foremost scholar of the American upper class, and he wrote a number of books that were uh, very popular in their day, Philadelphia Gentlemen, uh, The Protestant Establishment, Uh, He also wrote uh, one that's still sort of a cult classic today called Puritan Boston and Quaker Philadelphia. He was a member of the upper class himself, although he was not necessarily wealthy, but he had upper class status from Philadelphia. And he wrote about the emerging crisis of leadership in America that he saw as related to the failure of the old WASP establishment to adapt to changing times, that they had sort of lost their way. And as a result, America was sort of taking a turn for the worse in terms of its leadership. I came across a book, uh, you know, his book, Puritan Boston and Quaker Philadelphia, a few years ago, and thought it was one of the most amazing books about cities that I've ever read. I mean, even just thinking of it as a book about cities, it is uh, truly spectacular and uh, ended up studying his his works more and said, wow, this guy had a lot of insight, prescient insight, many, many years ago uh, that I should look to to bring to the world. So I, I, I wrote a piece that was a sort of a retrospective on his, his work for American Affairs that I think sheds light on a lot of the uh, touchstones of kind of modern society, such as the decline of political norms, sort of the decline of uh, the gentleman uh, you, you know, et cetera, and some of the challenges, the rise of charismatic populists like Trump. And so I, I wanted to write this piece to sort of shine a light on that. And also for myself, coming from essentially a rural Catholic peasant stock on both sides of my family, definitely not a wasp. I was also in education, a little bit on social class in America and, and, and a part of the country and its history that I had never really related to before. Tell us a little bit about these WASP elites. Uh, People tend to think about these uh, sort of East Coast people with British accents, a lot of airs and affectations, perhaps a little bit affected. Um, Yes. What's what what is really like I think of the movie Laura, you know, that gentleman who was the uh, newspaper critic who was just such a uh, highly refined, but pretty hard to take. And that's from like 1940s. Tell us about these WASP elites and who they really were a little bit and why we should be thinking about them after, well, really about half a century since they've declined. Sure. It's interesting today when we talk about the elite, we use terms like the elite. Uh, we use terms like the, you know, the, the, the 1%. We use terms like the rich. And we throw all these terms out there, the meritocracy, We sort of use a lot of terms, but they all seem to refer to the same group of people. Uh, 
Whereas Baltzell really draws very key distinctions between three separate things. Number one is the rich. Number two uh, are the elite. And number three is the upper class. So the wealthy, uh, you know, have a lot of money, but with their money, they may not hold um, top positions in society. And certainly uh, in a way that's maybe hard for us to relate to today, uh, they may not be considered very classy. You know, there was this idea, and you know, which we probably get from uh, watching British dramas, if nothing else, this idea that you know, new money is sort of gauche or not fully accepted, uh, you know, in sort of blue blood society. So you had the rich as kind of one group. Uh, the elites were people who were individuals who held the uppermost positions in all the key domains of society. You can think about presidents, senators, CEOs, top lawyers, top doctors, top scientists, artists, etc. So the elite are the people who hold the top positions in society. And then there's the upper class, a concept that's hard for us to relate to today. Uh, but the upper class was a group of extended families who tended to be descended from the wealthy and from the elite of generations past. And so these were people who were born into the highest social status uh, in American society. So whether you had a lot of money or not, or whether you uh, had an elite position or not, if you were a descendant of one of these upper class families, um, you know, if you, if you were a Roosevelt or you were a Bush or you were, uh, you know, an Adams, uh, you know, or you were a Harrison or you were a Taft, you know, you were somebody in society, essentially from birth, in the sense that, say, a titled aristocrat in in England uh, might might be someone. And so, so Baltzell really studies the interactions of these three things. And uh, the the question, I think, one of the key questions for him was, who are the elite? Uh, are the elite predominantly made up of upper class people, or are the elite uh, made up of you know, non-upper-class people or declassed. In in a situation where most of the elite roles in society are held by members of the upper class, that's what he called an establishment. So you can think back to you know when someone like uh, Teddy Roosevelt or FDR uh, or Woodrow Wilson uh, were presidents. You know these were people. You know these were people who were from upper-class backgrounds. You know FDR went to Groton School you know, to boarding school. He went to Harvard. This was a guy who was to the manor born and then became president. And so in that sort of uh, late 19th century up through mid-century, 20th century, America had an establishment in that many of the upper, uh, many of the elite positions in society were held by members of the upper class. And although we tend to be very anti-establishment today and feel that that uh, violates the rules of meritocracy, which we are used to saying, look, no, the elites should not be selected on any preference of of birth or social status, but we should actually have the best people of whatever background should occupy those elite positions. Uh, Baltzell took the, the view that it would be better to have an establishment because when you have an establishment, upper class social and moral codes of behavior uh, could be enforced on the elite. And so you would say, uh, you know, being, you know, your word is your bond or the old Anglo-American code of the gentleman. Uh, people in uh, who occupied the elite segments of society were people who sort of lived out that code because it was dominated by the upper class. And so the sorts of political norms of our society for example, those norms were in large part uh, a product of the upper class. And it's like, if you are a member of the upper class, there are certain things you just don't do. It's like, we don't do that. You know, we have certain codes of behavior, which, as you noted, could be very affected, could be very strange, uh, maybe weren't always good, but at least there were some rules of the road. And if you sort of violated the rules of the game, you might find yourself something of a social outcast among your upper class peers, which is something that you did not want to have. The other thing that upper class uh, uh, people brought to the table was 
they sort of were born to the top ranks of society. And so while there was a lot of, you know, jockeying for position within the upper class, you didn't have to spend the first 30, 40, however many years of your life, you know, crawling your way up the pole to the top, coming with a sense of great insecurity in your position. You sort of had this like aristocratic security in who you were. And, and there was a sense of this noblesse oblige that came with that. And so one of the, what, yeah, so, so I think the key is that's good when you end up with a D-classed elite where you have a pure meritocracy, if you will, essentially there are no more standards of behavior, no more norms. It's essentially every man and woman for himself, which produces very negative dynamics in society. Well, let's go through a series of things in your excellent rendition. One, I'm struck reading about Balzell again, or Balzell. Mm-hmm. That yeah, he's I'm not quite a, sure exactly how you pronounce it either sometimes, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> yeah, he's almost a bookend to Louis Auchincloss, who was writing in the post-World War II period fiction from New York about that whole society. And if you follow Auchincloss's writing from the 40s into the 70s, you really see this class you're talking about in decline and in both its good and bad aspects on display. Yes, it's interesting. A lot of what we perhaps think we know or do know uh, about the upper class and its folk ways actually comes from fiction. Uh, you know, maybe the novels of Edith Wharton or some of these different different writers. Um, there was not as much sort of sociology analytics uh, applied to that. So I think it is interesting to read the novels, uh, you know, to, to think about learning something about the folk ways of these groups. And you're right that... Uh, one of the things we tend to think of the establishment and the upper class kind of reaching a crisis point and going into decline in the 1960s, that the 60s, especially during the kind of the counterculture era, was the, was the critical point. Whereas uh, Baltz, Baltz makes clear that even prior to World War II, there were already signs that things were going going wrong. And that sort of that 1950s, you know, 1950 to 1945 to 1960 era, he described it as an Indian summer period of the establishment where it sort of made something of a comeback. But he would have said that the problems of the uh, establishment and the upper class sort of predated World War II even. Well, let's talk about some terms and go through a series of issues that people talk about a lot today. One is, as you referred to, meritocracy. Uh, The term was coined by a British politician in the 1950s named Michael Young, a man of the left, and he foresaw the rise of so-called meritocracy based on educational notions of merit. He also foresaw the rise of a political reaction to it. How do you see meritocracy in the American context? Yeah, well, it's a little hard for someone like myself to be too critical of meritocracy. If we had a totally class-bound society, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. You know, Neither I, one of us would. By yeah, way. yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sitting. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in rural Southern Indiana. I grew up on a country road about four miles outside of a town of fifty people or so, and you know, meritocracy has enabled me to go to college, to get a job in the consulting industry and, and work as a corporate consultant, and then to uh, work for an urban policy uh, in an urban policy think tank role in New York City and to be able to be featured in you know the American media, write articles like the one in American Affairs. So meritocracy has been very good uh, to me personally. And so I think there are there are aspects of meritocracy that are good. And one of the things that, you know, Baltzell was not pure opposed to, uh, you know, merit per se. One of the things that he felt it was incumbent upon the upper class to do was that in each generation, it had to absorb uh, essentially new men of merit from among the wealthy and the elite. Uh, they need to essentially be assimilated into the upper class. So that could be you know, the children of, you know, the new money billionaire, you know, his son might marry the daughter of an upper class family, uh, you know, or, you know, or kind of that you could reverse the genders and sort of they could marry in over the generations or someone who had achieved very high levels of success in society, say, became the president of the United States, became a senator, would be invited into the club. So you had to be absorbing new blood into the upper class over time 
you know, hopefully on some sort of meritorious basis. And that is what he really saw that the wasps were not doing. Uh, they were not absorbing uh, new blood, and particularly they refused uh, to allow Catholics and Jews to to really be considered part of the upper class. And you know, the, you know, a lot of uh, especially Jews were you know blackballed from certain professions uh, like elite law. They were blackballed from you know these resort communities, from you know clubs and things of that nature. And so it sort of became much more of a hereditary caste. Uh, as he called it. And he he said that is not in keeping with what he called the aristocratic principle. The aristocratic principle is that you have to allow kind of the new blood that earns its way in to join, not to just make it a purely sort of hereditary elite like in pre-revolutionary France. And so so I want to be clear that, that Balta was not opposed to a meritocracy. Um, I think what we have today uh, though, is not just a system that does, I think, rightly allow people to achieve um, some level of success, uh, you know, through through merit, this this porous boundaries that allow people to rise up through through through, the, through society, which I think is important. But I would argue that in a lot of ways, we really do not have the kind of meritocracy that we like to pretend that we do. Uh, you know, I don't think Baltzell really wrote about this, but we 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 pretend that the people who are in these elite positions are people who earned their way in, when in fact many of them uh, were given a leg up by their family in other positions. And so there's this there's this illusion. I think we have an something of an illusion of a meritocracy, in which many people uh, today enjoy the privileges of birth. Uh, that say the the wasp elites used to, but they sort of pretend as if they made it on their own. <laughs> there's there's well, this there's this there's this sense that we have a meritocracy when I think we actually have much less of a meritocracy than we might like to pretend that we do. Let, let's define terms a bit. Let's let's yep. work our way through. Let's start first with oligarchy. Mm -hmm. One of the great fears of the American founders, and of course they were doing their work at the time of Gibbon's decline and fall coming out. They were very mindful of the history in Greece and Rome, they wanted to avoid an oligarchy, a government of the few. Are we in an oligarchy today? You know, it's really hard to, to describe, I think, the character of the, of the American regime in terms of some of these simple political categories uh, from the past. I do think that we have a, you know, a billionaire class now that has some form of, um, you might call it oligarchic influence that derives from either a sort of monopoly or oligopoly status in many of these industries that exist today. You know, we have far fewer banks than we used to, far fewer media companies. In some industries, we're down to essentially one, one major player. But I think that's only one source of power in, in our society. I think it's a popular one to talk about the 1% or the 0.01%. But one of the things that's very different about society today, and one I think Boltzell didn't fully grasp all of the implications of this himself, is that with the Industrial Revolution, we had a revolution in scale in society, and that we went from, you know, you know, in 1790, New York City had like 50,000 people. Boston had something like 25,000 people. We went from a rural village slash small town, uh, you know, a world to essentially a world of gigantic cities, gigantic corporations, and bureaucratic organizations. Uh, you know, government uh, now is operated, you know, maybe more by a vast bureaucracy than by elected officials. And the same thing is true in corporate America in a greatest sense. You know, uh, James Burnham called this the managerial revolution. Yes. And it's been written about, um, prior to him, Bruno Rizzi, the, uh, the, Italian, um, the Italian Trotskyite, called it the bureaucratization of the world. And it's this idea that there is now essentially a, uh, uh, you, maybe you could think of it as a clerical class or a uh, Mandarin class or a, you know, a, a bureaucratic class that has you know immense power uh, in our society in a lot of ways. You can think also of uh, you know also of power emanating from Harvard and all the you know the professorial class, the media class, 
and in a sense you can say these are the few but they're not an, they're not an oligarchy in a historic sense of you know uh you know a small kind of clique of people so yes there's sort of there is sort of a small group of, of billionaires out there there also is a you know maybe a uh, a larger group uh depending on how you want to define it mainly a fairly large group of people who are part of the kind of professional managerial class that also have a tremendous amount of influence in our society. I don't think we fully understand um, all the dynamics of how power and control works in a large scale technological, um, you know, mass media urbanized society, which, you know, previous, you know, pre-modern, you know, kind of pre-industrial political theorists really didn't have categories for. Well, let's, Let's go through a few things and, and yep. try to um, narrow the discussion a little bit each time. Mm-hmm. One is, let's assume for the moment, and I have a lot of sympathy with this notion, but just for the discussion hypothetically, that we are heading toward an oligarchic situation, which is what arguably democratic republics do, and they have to correct for it now and again. U.S. history, this has certainly happened repeatedly in various guises. And one way to think about the operations by whatever word you want to call it, of the of the highly concentrated power, uh, there's a meritocracy around it that's almost like a Praetorian guard, a protector of the status quo. So young people are formally educated and they're acculturated through secondary and post-secondary education, sorted into this meritocracy. They're told they have, quote, merit, It's certified by possessing degrees, sort of emblems of entitlement. They move into managerial and related service positions for interlocking institutions in government, corporations, finance, law, NGO, and the military. In effect, one could say there's a conditioning for compliance and groupthink rewarded by prestige and a sort of security and the ecosystem they're part of. And it, to the extent any of that's true, we've got a system that probably includes a lot of the so-called upper middle class, which has dramatically expanded in the past generation to, you could argue, about 20 percent. Uh, that is having disproportionate influence and is rather anti-innovation and self-protective. How would you react to that kind of uh, machine gun broadside of well, you know, I. I- you know, I agree. That's kind of what I say. There's the there's kind of the you know all all may call it oligarchs properly so called in in the billionaire class, and then there are you know this large professional managerial class. And you're you're very right that there is a there you know it's it's a very ideological environment uh, for one thing. And uh, you know uh, you know Baltzell noted this that it used to be that there were sort of s- standards of personal conduct. Um, you know that you know someone who is a liar. You know. And one of the things that the WASP frowned on was divorce, for example. So there were sort of moral standards of behavior. Whereas today, there's very few moral standards of behavior, but the standards are very ideological. You need to essentially mouth all the right new lingo um, every day to keep in. And there is no, and there's no faction or division within the elite, within this top group to check the power of oligarchy or check the powers of other other factions and uh you, you know that's sort of a you know so you think about freedom in a sense freedom in society is in part a byproduct of divisions within the the elite or the ruling class or whatever you want to call it and we have a very you know an incredibly unified um you know elite in a lot of ways um you know i think many of these people share a tremendous uh, amount uh, in common, there are very few. If you think about the, uh, you, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, the bottom forty percent, if you will, of society, you know, their preferences and views have essentially no representation uh, among yes. the elite. And so, one of the things that the one of the things that the existence of this WASP upper class did had, it was a fairly small group of people. A lot of them, you know, they knew each other. They were intermarried. They grew up together. Uh, they were a real social community. I think that's one of the key things Baltzell says. This was an actual social group. It was not just a, you know, the working class or some functionally defined group. And that social cohesion that they had as a group made them, in essence, something of an independent power base 
And so that's why they were able to uh, domesticate and then assimilate the robber barons. Uh, for well, let, let, let's, let me come back to today in the meritocracy and, and offer some sort of devil's advocate observations that one hears out and about. And I'm still making up my mind, but I want to say some, uh, share some kind of incendiary observations that are in the air. Uh, there's a strong argument to be made that the current meritocracy, and we'll, we define it closely enough, the top 20%, the managerial class, and so on, the, that they're corrupted in any meaningful sense. That is to say, they're not serving the institutions properly that they are given authority or power to protect. Now, they have tremendous self-proclaimed virtue, virtuousness, but yet when it comes to any of their privileges, they'll defend them without scruple. And it's made worse by the fact they believe they are meritorious and virtuous. So let me give you an example. Uh, take the state and local tax deduction that's been in the air for the past several years, being pulled back. I don't know of any economist who would say that's a fair deduction. It goes almost entirely to upper income people. It benefits the wealthy first on their taxes, then later by artificially boosting real estate asset prices. You can add to that restrictive zoning, often in the name of environmental protection, but often protecting existing prerogatives. And these are in direct conflict with younger people, new Americans, and so on. How would you react to those kinds of observations? Well, I certainly think it's the case that we have a very self-serving uh, elite. Uh, there's no doubt that things have gone very well uh, for the top 20%. Um, I mean, if you go back to, say, the 1980s, uh, you know, if you were in the top 20%, you really couldn't consume that much differently than the rest of the country because you know there, there were like three TV networks, three brands of beer, et cetera. Now, I mean, you can live like a million bucks, you know, if you're just in the, you know, the top 20%, you know, with your artisanal foods and your fancy coffees and your fancy beers and all, all this stuff that's come along. And so this group of people has greatly prospered. At the same time, we've had stagnating real median incomes, declining life expectancy, et cetera. And all of the policies that they have promoted, uh, particularly around globalization, have been policies that have benefited them at the expense of, you know, essentially their fellow countrymen. And so they have ceased, you know, this is not totally a new observation. I mean, I think it's interesting to go back and look at who was talking about this. And in the early 90s, there was a lot of um, talk about this point. In 1991, I believe, Robert Reich wrote an op-ed for the New York Times called The Secession of the Successful. And basically he said, look, the top 20% are seceding from society. They are now in it for themselves. They live amongst themselves, et cetera. Um, Christopher Lash wrote The Revolt of the Elites, I think was published in 94. Um, so there was a lot kind of in the air then, and then it kind of went away in the go-go 90s. But I do think we've had that. I think Reich's phrase, The Secession of the Successful, basically sums it up. And I think a lot of this, you know, this uh, uh, this idea of merit, not just, uh, you know, merit in terms of achievement. I went to the right schools. I had this. But this idea that a moral meritoriousness, that I hold all of the correct, politically correct opinions on every issue, um, you know, really has allowed, um, you know, allowed the elite of our country to say, well, you know, the 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 60% of the country that's been suffering under our rule deserves what they're getting because they're bad people. And they kind of deserve to suffer and we shouldn't care too much about them. And, oh, by the way, we're lifting people out of poverty in rural China, and that's great. And so they've come up with an entire moral um, lingo to essentially justify their own self-enrichment in which they essentially have deliberately sold out the country uh, to line their own pockets. And almost none of them serve in the military at a time when this country has been at war continuously for a generation. What difference does that make in your view? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I, I think it's, 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 it's part of the change that has happened. You know, in World War II, virtually every WASP elite, you know, WASP upper class person in that, of that era who was, you know, in the right age range to serve went into the military. Uh, you know, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., for example, even resigned his Senate seat yes. to go serve in the military. You don't you don't see things like that happen today. 
I do think, however, um, you know, the, maybe a little bit of a, you know, a minor tangential point. You actually do see more of these people serving in the military today out of what appears to be some sort of a careerist resume building, uh, particularly among young people with political ambitions in the Democratic Party. Pete Buttigieg is a perfect example of a guy. You know, he he in, he was a you know I think uh, some kind of intelligence position in the National Guard, got himself sent to Afghanistan. Uh, so I've seen a number of these people who are now uh, getting some military experience in some sort of a uh, not especially uh, risky role <laughs> has been something that's part of, kind of become part of the resume padding. Uh, so watch, watch this space, as they say, uh, to see, to see what's coming up. But I think you're right. They don't, um, uh, they don't serve in the military. Um, you know, although they like deploying the military to, to do different things. Well, motivation one can never fully know, but if one feels that one should serve in order to be respected, uh, as able to make a difference on behalf of others, I'm not sure that's to be doubted too much. You know, if yeah. you look at Woodrow Wilson, uh, who didn't have sons, but he had daughters. They they served in World War One as nurses. You had Frank uh, Theodore Roosevelt. All of his children served. One died in World War One. Franklin Roosevelt's children all served. Uh, and then you look at more recent times. That's just gone. And right. uh, I'm among those who find that troubling. But that's yeah, just and, and speaking. Yeah, and it's not. I mean, even the ones that serve. Again, if you look at it, like George W. Bush was in the Air National Guard. <laughs> Okay, so again, did he serve? Yes, but he was, you know, it was a little, a little bit of a different, uh, a, a little bit of a different scenario there. I mean, I, I think to some extent, rather than you know trying to get more elite into the military, maybe it should be more the working pl- class people who decide to stop looking so friendly at the military, um, you know, because I don't think that the military, you know, is necessarily being used today to promote necessarily the interest of our country. Uh, or of their own communities, you know, in a sense. Let's go in a slightly different direction. You know, against the high self-regard of many in this so-called meritocracy, the noted management thinkers Peter Drucker and Tom Peters, and I know you've worked in management consulting with some distinction, they each urged that professional schools produce what they called, quote, competent mediocrities. Today, and that's when they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're producing mm-hmm. people from middle management to serve in bureaucracies, not to be the leaders. They're not to be the best or the worst, but right. to provide predictable performance. Now, today, one might go a step further and call this situation toxic mediocrities. And let me mm-hmm. make a few points. One is we see evidence from high status, so-called meritocratic organizations like McKinsey, systemic corruption where they've been exposed as enabling the drug pandemic that, as you referred to, has devastated the American heartland. We saw in the early 2000s that accounting and credit rating firms of longstanding trust were exposed as compromised during the fallout from the Enron, WorldCom, and other collapses. Legendary names on Wall Street that went back a century attracted investors based on their historical reputations for integrity and then were exposed as riotously self-serving during the financial crisis. Law firms, including those who have historic names of honor, who are supposed to hold the highest level of ethical guardianship, have been found routinely to be an ethical collapse. Do you agree with these characterizations? And if so or if not, what's going on? Yeah, well, you know, basically it's pretty clear that that's the case. And, uh, you know, there has been something that's changed even in my lifetime. As you know, a large number of bankers were prosecuted during the SNL crisis of the 1980s into the early 90s. You go back to 2007 financial crash. I mean, basically nobody was prosecuted with that. Yes. You know, a few a few Ponzi schemers and insider traders will get prosecuted, but nobody for. I mean, here's an example. Wells Fargo just not that long ago was discovered to have created something like 2 million bogus accounts that their customers didn't request. And, uh, yeah, you know, and yet they paid a fine slap on the wrist. CEO gets a golden parachute, no criminal penalties. I'm like, if a single mom, right, writes a bad check, she's got a real problem on her hands where these bankers can, can get away with anything. And, um, it's it's truly uh, it, it's truly uh, you know it's truly insane and so that's that does seem to be unfortunately 
uh, what has happened. You know, Balzo also, he does talk about kind of the changes in the professions. I mean, part of this old, you know, maybe you could call it part of the WASP elite. I mean, the WASP were very heavily involved in elite law and elite medicine, that there were real professional codes um, that governed those professions and the way that people dealt and, and, man, and did it. And now a lot of those kind of professional, this idea that, you know, as a consultant, as a lawyer, you had your own internal moral compass and ethical code, you know, apart from just what your client was paying you to do uh, or or what was legal to get away with. Uh, you know, it's let, you know, what's the letter of the law and how can I get around it? You know, it, it to, been total decline uh, in that in, in the professions. And, um, you know, it's really, uh, you know, it's really, um, you know, it's really depressing to see. Well, let's let's go to the nerve center of a lot of this talk about meritocracy, and that's our educational system, particularly college and graduate school, and they're remarkably unscathed in these discussions. I mean, some of our most respected universities hold endowments in the billions of dollars with tax advantage support from all taxpayers. They also profiteer, I guess that's a judgmental word, but I think it's accurate, through ever-rising tuitions and fees that loan programs and other, uh, other types of assistance sustain. Administrative bloat is rampant. Facilities have become, you know, they've moved so far from sort of Groton-style austerity of Mr. Peabody in the 1880s to almost country club looking stuff in some cases. Yet yep. there's no accountability. The competition is so fierce and prized, they're untouchable. This year, for example, uh, at Harvard, just 3.4% of applicants were admitted at Yale 4.6, at Duke 5.8. Now you might think Congress would take action on this, but then if you look at the Congress, a great number of those members attended those institutions or have children who attend them, or children they would like to have attend them. And there is literally no oversight of these universities as they're considering issues such as the tuition loan crisis. Yeah. What do you well, think about this? Why well, is think, no one doing this? Well, I think you should look at where the children of these people go. And that's where meritocracy, I think the idea that we have a meritocracy, you know, is kind of a farce. So you start looking at, you, you, I'll just read little articles. Yes, Mike Pence's daughter went to Yale Law School. So if you look, I can't remember exactly where Pence himself went to law school, but he didn't go to an elite law school. Uh, so it's like, you know, did she really get the LSATs and the grades and all that to get in on a pure merit? You know, another uh, senator from Indiana, uh, Evan Bayh, had two of his children. Uh, we had twin boys. They went to Harvard. Um, you know, they all got into Harvard. You tell me that they all got it. So it's like the children of the powerful enjoy immense privilege in the system. And then the privilege of these exclusive institutions is then in turn transmitted to those kids uh, for the next generation. And again, Balzo wouldn't necessarily say that that was wrong per se, uh, but there's a responsibility that comes with it, which that we do not have today. Uh, we have this, like, we, we pretend that all these people are sort of getting in uh, on their own, that they earned what they got, and that therefore they have no obligations beyond what they can grab for themselves. And so I, I think that's I think I do I do think you know the fact that the children of these the elite and the powerful, uh, you know you know are going to these places is a huge uh, way to defend you know to defend the institutions. If you're Harvard, you just let in the the children of all the senators and people like that, and like when would they ever take you down? Why would they ever go against you? So right. and, and just like, do you think, do you really think that the, you know, there's these discrimination lawsuits being filed against Harvard and Yale and blah, blah, blah. Do you really think that the Supreme Court, which is essentially almost entirely Harvard and Yale law grads, is going to do anything to hurt Harvard and Yale? Probably not. Well, and I, I certainly understand these institutions that are great institutions in many ways. And to the extent they're private, you know, they can do what they will but they also get tremendous public assistance in various ways and protection, and in this case, lack of oversight. And they don't appear to feel an independent obligation to the country as a whole. No, in fact, you know, they, you know, many of their top professors have been caught red-handed selling out the country, selling secrets to China. You know, it was just that guy at Harvard that was just charged with, you know, undisclosed ties to China. 
And, uh, you know, they're profiting off foreign money. That's the other thing. How much foreign money has been pumped into these universities? Uh, and you're telling me that doesn't shape elite discourse in the United States? Of course it does. Well, if to go back to your historical examples, and, you know, I, I assume you're not proposing, and I, I some kind of return to a WASP-style elite, uh, that had maybe some benefits, but a lot of limitations too. It ultimately was inconsistent with uh, the American ethos and the way a lot of the things we're talking about may be inconsistent. Nonetheless, there are things to be learned and good and bad. And if you think back to Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt, who were archetypal wasps of the type you're referring to that era, they were both considered traitors to their class, and they were a big part of reforms in their time. Is it gonna take traitors to the meritocracy in a sense to begin to take this system on, people that know it from the inside but have the perspective of the outside? Uh, well, there has to be, you know, it has, it's whatever changes we have in our society that are gonna be positive, if we're gonna have them, they're gonna have to come from somewhere, some sort of internal dissent within the elite. Uh, you know, it, we're not going to have some populist uprising that is going to, uh, you know, end up changing the country for the better. In my view, our problem is a problem of the elite, um, much more so than, you know, an insufficient, uh, insufficient paying attention to the kind of democratic demands of the masses, because we always have an elite. Uh, was it, uh, I can't remember the name, was it Gitano Mosca who came up with the iron law of, uh, of oligarchy? That yes. every society is going to have a ruling class. There's always going to be something of an oligarchy. And the real question is, what is the actual character of of that, you know, of that ruling class? And so when you have people who are essentially uh, traitors to their class in some respects, or who have a, you know, an ethos of public service, uh, a genuine public service, you know, that comes out of that, uh, you know that that's often where um, you know many of the most positive things in society, you know, positive changes in society come out come uh, come out from, you know, and, and we see it like you know here in Indiana, um, you know, it's a manufacturing state, and there's a small manufacturing town called Columbus that's essentially the only manufacturing city in the Midwest that didn't go down the tubes in the Rust Belt era. In part, it was because their you know wasp elite. Uh, patrician father of the town, J. Irwin Miller, you know, and, and his Fortune 500 company that his family controlled, Cummins Engines, pumped immense amounts of money into their town, were highly committed to their town, and, uh, you know, provided an enormous political leadership and cultural leadership to help them, you know, transform uh, through, you know, through the civil rights era, through the post-industrial era, and, you know, without that, you know, a lot of the other places just kind of went down the tubes. And so you can see, you know, we don't we don't have that caliber of leadership today. Well, let's look to the future. And there are a lot of people out there who would listen to this discussion and probably nod their head at a lot of the concerns and would rightly say, OK, Aaron Wren, you are a brilliant diagnostician of the problem. What do we do? Yeah, that's a really uh, that's a really interesting uh, question. I mean, I don't have a. It's hard to come up with a really good prescription for that because again, there has to be some internal reform of the elite. One thing that I I have said is, we've really been hurt in America since the fall of communism by the fact that we had had no geostrategic competitor, and so essentially America became a a monopoly, a global monopoly superpower. And like all monopolies, we kind of got a little fat, dumb, lazy. Our product quality declined. We're not providing very good customer service to our citizens. And perhaps, you know, the silver lining of the, of the rise of China is that it'll it'll have some, some external strategic pressure on the country uh, that would create some kind of reform. So I think that's one. I think there's another possibility that there's some sort of a crisis uh, that provokes a major institutional change. You know, we've had these crises periodically in our country. You know, the revolution was a crisis, you know, through to the creation of the Constitution. You know, the Civil War uh, was was a major crisis where we essentially, you know, re, you know, in a sense, refounded the country. And similarly with the, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the New Deal to World War II era, that was essentially another kind of refounding of the country. And, you know, it's it's about 70-something years, 70, 80 years, between those events, well, we're now, you know, 
76 years or something past the end of World War II, um, you know, I think in a sense our institutions are due for a reset to match modern reality. And what we've seen historically is that, you know, results from some sort of a crisis. So I'm not necessarily, uh, you know, hoping there's a, a major crisis in our country. Some sort of a crisis uh, might, in fact, create the possibility of something better happening, not necessarily the guarantee of it, but a possibility that we could make some changes um, there. And then we might also see some, um, you know, some actual uh uh, you know, war, call it war breakout within the elite. We also we already see some of this, you know, between Silicon Valley and the media. There are a lot of these Silicon Valley people who really don't like the New York Times and the East Coast media. That you know, I, I don't really have time to go into all this, but you know, in in essence, who gets to call, control call the shots in society? Does the does the New York Times call the shots, or does you know Google and Facebook call the shots? And there is sort of a, you know, a, a bit of a low-grade war going on here. And when you see the newspaper, when you see the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times writing exposés about uh, tech companies and, oh, they need to, to moderate their comment here, their sexist there, I think we should see that as part of them trying to assert some sort of, you know, hegemony over those companies and, and kind of cut them down to size and make sure they have to be responsive to the demands of the media, to the East Coast, Whereas, you know, on, you know, they see the West Coast, they're buying up newspapers, they're doing different things. So I think we are seeing something of a low-grade conflict between Silicon Valley and New York uh, slash D.C. That might uh, lead to uh, some sorts of new new things happening. Don't know what that might be, but that's another one to uh, to keep an eye on. Well, one thing uh, so it's those got are, those to lead to, yeah. if you go back 100 years ago, is that sort of civil war among prospective oligarchs should lead to what uh, would be called a countervailing power on behalf of the public at some point from political leadership. And that, that's a different question how that is expressed. But I think a lot of people would rightly be very concerned if the national narrative were outsourced to either of those contending groups that right now arguably have outsized power. I mean, no oligarchy in history. Imagine if John D. Rockefeller had bought the Washington Post or the New York Times and had a internet to work with and so on, or JP Morgan. I mean, the kind of power we're seeing right now without accountability is absolutely unprecedented. And that, and I don't use that term lightly. Uh, we use it too much, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, the kind of media power that we have today is so much different because of the, because of the internet. And, you know, there's these choke points on the information flows and, you know, it really gives, uh, you know, tremendous power to the people who, who control, uh, who control kind of the digital public square. And so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we do have a lot of unaccountable power and, uh, you know, everybody, again, everybody in government is not taking them on because they've been financed by them or hope to be financed by them someday. You know, how many, how many uh, Google peop uh, people went to work in the Obama administration, Right. You know, look, go look at all the former government officials who are now employed in Silicon Valley. Look at the revolving door between politics and the media and how many different reporters go to be press secretaries and comms people and all that. So, I mean, I think in a sense there are some divisions between these things, but there's a lot of flow back and forth and a lot of connections that, you know, really sort of limit, uh, you know, the ability of, you know, of people in the truly the public sector to to push back on some of this stuff. And it's it, it's complex. It's complex. There aren't necessarily these clean separations between academia, business, government, media uh, that we might think because people bounce around a lot between them, have a lot of connections between them. They, they anticipate that someday they will bounce around between them. They anticipate that they will get the Netflix deal uh, after they're out of the Oval Office, for example. I know I'm going to get the massive media deals. I'm going to get the or I'm going to get that public policy job at Facebook. So there's a lot, uh, you know, there's a lot, uh, you know, there's a lot to consider. It's very complicated, very complex. It's not like, you know, we go back to to even ancient Greeks, you know, a city like Athens, you know, 100,000 people maybe in Athens, most of whom are non-citizens. And even the complexities of that are vastly, um, vastly less complex than the system we have today. And that's always the case, right? It yeah. looks, it always looks simple from the distance of the future. Uh, 
the past looked simple, but it, it wasn't because they didn't know things that we now see. But one thing I think is clear, at least I would argue and be interested in your reaction, uh, when countries get to very serious points, questions always asked, in this case in the United States, who speaks for America, for all of us? And a lot of us have the sense for quite a while that no one is speaking for America. Now, granted, some people rhetorically would say they do, but it's pretty hard to see they are. Well, you know, our, our elites have, it's more profitable for our elites to side with um, kind of, you know, take a globalist perspective than, than kind of a national one. And in fact, they're more solicitous of the opinion of their overseas markets than they are of the, um, you know, kind of of the American people. Uh, that's why, you know, I, I would love to see, um, you know, a lot of our companies, um, you know, a lot of other countries decouple from the United States. You know, this this idea of tr uh, Twitter kicking off Donald Trump and his being censored by the tech media, that set off alarm bells, uh, you know, overseas. Yes. You yes. know, the, the left-wing president of Mexico is like, we don't like that. And so I think we're going to see... Well, Chancellor like, Merkel, too. Yeah, Chancellor I mean, Merkel. So I, I think... Yeah. I think to the extent that, uh, you know, I think other, if I had any advice to a foreign country, it would be, you know, firewall yourself off from the United States as much as possible. Um, and uh, and so I think to the extent that, uh, you know, like I think Silicon Valley already knows they're not getting into China market. And the more countries that kick out Silicon Valley tech companies, uh, you know, it, the 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 better it is for America because they become much more purely domestic concerns and have to be concerned about America much more than they do today. Well, Aaron Wren, you have raised a number of tremendously provocative issues, and we'll have all of us thinking. It's been an absolute delight to have you today and to begin to learn from your important work on the state of the meritocracy in the United States and a bit of historic perspective. And I hope we'll be able to come back to you again in the future. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks to our listeners for being with us. Please take just a moment to click a five-star rating on iTunes. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics and follow us on Twitter at James Strock and connect via our website, Serve to Lead. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived and we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.